The reading is taken from Matthew, the end of, oh, Matthew 4. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. The first disciples. As he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with Zebedee, their father, preparing their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Teaching, preaching, and healing. Now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Then the news about him spread throughout Syria. So they brought to him all those who were afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, and the paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Thank you, Jackie. Well, if you are a guest today, my name is Brad. It's my honor to be one of the pastors here. So glad that you have joined us. If you are relatively new, I want to tell you about a couple of things. Uh, one is Fellowship 101. So right after our worship gathering today, right out in the cafe, I'll be out there. Some of our leadership will sprinkle in, and uh, it'll be an opportunity for me to take just 15 or so minutes and tell you about the heartbeat of our church, our mission, and ways you can get engaged. Find people, whether that's in a small group or a Bible study or a place to serve, uh, uh, just so that you can know what we're all A few minutes. There we go. Back on. Uh, but also, I want you guys to put this on your calendar. So uh, as our last worship song was playing and just describing the awareness that we need to have of the presence of the Lord, uh, I wanted to reinforce to us this morning that when we gather in this space, there is certainly a healthy piece to having a routine to gather with the body, to gather in corporate worship, to sing, to teach, uh, but we don't want it to be rote. Like There is a work that the Lord wants to do today in your life, and as we've been talking about spiritual formation, we're going to talk about it Today, one of the things that we've wanted to do is, is really kind of help people understand that it is not just something you do alone, but it's something that we do together. And so Refresh is going to be an evening uh, in, uh, in, in October on a Thursday night that we want to be restorative to your soul, we want to be refreshing, and we've done everything we can to make it convenient, but also beneficial. So we're going to go old school. So for those of you who grew up with like a Wednesday night dinner and a prayer meeting, like we're going to gather and have dinner here. Um, and then we're going to move into the uh, auditorium. We're going to have a time of worship, a time of teaching, but also a prayer and space. And so uh, it's going to be a powerful night. And we want to begin to do these periodically 
throughout the year as a chance for us to, A, get to know one another better, but really have some space to engage our hearts with the Lord. So put that on your calendar. Fellowship 2.0, we have been learning over the last several weeks now what it means for us to walk faithfully into our calling and purpose as a church. Now, I don't just mean that from an institutional standpoint, but I mean the church as best understood in the scripture, that we are the people of God. So when we talk about this as a vision, we don't just mean it for kind of us organizationally, but I believe that this is as much for you away from this place as it is for you while you're in this space. It's not intended to be a fad or a program, but it's our best attempt to lay before you what it means for us to be a people of God who are formed by the gospel uh, and who live and express the gospel in our life. So much so that for the past year, we've been working on this, and for the last several weeks, our staff and our elders, we have actually retooled our mission statement to more accurately describe who we are and who we feel God is calling us to be. And so this morning, I just want to put that before you. We've kind of been leading and working towards this, and this feels like the appropriate time for us to really just define this. And so the, the, the mission statement for our church going forward, we've had a wonderful mission statement for seven years, and it has served us well to give us a North Star. But as we've matured and as we've really sought and said, Lord, who are we in this next season? The way we've described it is this, is that we are a people brought to life in Jesus made spiritual family by Jesus, who together practice the way of Jesus for the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. Now I want to point out two things in this mission statement. One, for those of you who may have really done well in language arts or were grammar teachers, you might instruct your grammar teachers not to repeat the same noun over and over in a sentence but we have repeated the name of Jesus with purpose in this sentence because we want it to be crystal clear that we are organizing our lives, we're orienting our church around Jesus. And then we see kind of these three divisions. And if you have been with us for the last few, really for the last several months, we've been talking about the fact that we are a church whose foundation is the gospel story. The redemptive story that God, in his mercy and love, sought to redeem and restore his creation through the work of Jesus Christ. And we are brought to life in Christ. Christ does the work to awaken our hearts to Christ. And in doing so, he makes us brothers and sisters. He adopts us into his spiritual family. And so we relate to one another, not as strangers, but relate to one another as family. And that has practical implications to how we work together and talk with each other and serve one another. And, and then we are also a people who God has a mission for the people outside of this space. And so we're to practice the ways of Jesus for God's glory, but also for the good of our neighbors. And so that's who we are. That's who we are hoping to continue to be in the years ahead. And over the last several weeks, we've been focusing on this question. So what does it then mean to follow the way of Jesus? Now, last Sunday, I said that this question was a hard question to answer, not because Jesus was vague about what it meant to follow him, not because Jesus didn't give us the resources necessary to follow him, but because in our kind of historical moment, in our cultural moment as the church, it's possible 
to be a Christian. In other words, it's possible to check the survey, yes, I'm a Christian, but not actually be a disciple of Jesus, not actually be an apprentice of Jesus, not follow the ways of Jesus, not spend time with Jesus, not do the things Jesus did. But here's the thing that we said last week, that's not the intent of the gospel. The intent of the gospel is not just to be something that we consume, but rather something that conforms us into the image of Christ. Because Jesus is worthy and because this is what he wants for your life. This is for your good. The passage that Jackie read for us in Matthew chapter 4 illustrates this. And I want to point out a couple of observations, three observations actually from Jesus' first invitation to his disciples. Because I want us to see this. I want this to get deeply rooted into us. And so there will be some moments you're like, okay, Brad, we get it. Move on. Probably not. I'm going to try to really repeat this because I don't want us to miss this. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, follow me, he told them. And I will make you fish for people. So immediately, they, this is uh, Peter and his brothers, the early disciples, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, the sons of Zebedee and his brother John. And they were in a boat with Zebedee, their father, preparing their nets. And he called them. And immediately they left their boat and they followed him. I want to make... An observation here. I want you to notice a couple of words. I want you to notice, first of all, this word immediately. It's used a couple of times in this passage. It's not only used here, but it's also used in Mark's gospel and the other gospel to describe the nature in which the early disciples followed Jesus. And so observation number one I want to make this morning is that there is a spiritual urgency to spiritual formation. There's an urgency, rather, to spiritual formation. So it's noted twice in this passage that there was an immediacy to following Jesus. And so I think it makes us kind of ask the question, uh, what are we to make of this? And one of the things I think that we can uh, draw out from this passage is that the life of Jesus and the mission of Jesus, the message of Jesus, was so compelling, so enrapturing, so attractive that these early disciples just said, yeah. We are going to follow Jesus. We're not going to spend any time building a pro and con list. That's what we want to be about. But also, it shows us the level of commitment required to actually apprentice under Jesus. Jesus' message was not, hey, if you want to give this some consideration, I'm going to swing back around here to Capernaum in a week, and uh, if you want to come, I'll, I'll be back. It was an invitation that required either immediate obedience or rejection. So there's an urgency to spiritual formation. That's one of the things that is why this is so important. We're just beating the drum. Like, this is critical for your life. A second observation is that there was a great personal cost to these disciples following Jesus. Pay attention here. So he's walking along the Sea of Galilee. He sees two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother, Andrews. And they were casting net into the sea for their fishermen. Immediately, they, notice this, they left their nets and they followed him. And then in verse 22, it describes James and John. These brothers, they're with their father. Immediately, they left their boat and their father. And they followed Jesus. The earliest disciples left their possessions, 
their professions and to some degree left their families or at least related to their families in a different way to follow Jesus. The path to following Jesus was costly, but at the same time, it was the path to life. It was the most life-giving thing they've ever done. Matter of fact, if they had just continued to fish, you would know nothing about their lives. It actually paved the path for them to have meaning and purpose. And then a final observation is there's a, there is a new lifestyle associated <clears throat> excuse me, with spiritual formation. Look at this. Immediately, they left their nets and they followed him. They left their boat, they left their father, and they followed him. They followed Jesus. Jesus became the center. Now, these men were aimless. They had purpose. They had a passion. They had a culture. They had family. They had a job. But when Jesus came on the scene and invited them to apprentice under them, he became the new center. He became their new director, if you will. Jesus was not a hobby. This was a new way of life. Now, if, I, if you've been tracking with us, You've been hearing me use this phrase over and over, that this is a lifestyle. And I'm using that phrase because this is the vision, I believe, that Jesus has of what it means to be his disciples, and this is the vision that we have for our church. One of the phrases that's kind of popular in our culture today is we might say something like this, like, I just don't like people who have an agenda. And that is one of the stupidest phrases we have in our culture because every one of us have an agenda, and so I just want to be honest about my agenda. I have an agenda for you. Our elders, our spiritual leaders, we have an agenda for you. If you are a part of this church, here is our agenda. We want to do our very best to shape your thinking, living, loving behavior, attitudes, and values into the image of Christ. That's our agenda. The Jesus of the Bible, to be clear. Not left-wing Jesus, not right-wing Jesus, not suburban Jesus, not life coach Jesus, but the full Jesus revealed to us in the Scripture. The Jesus who is our Savior, the one who rescues us from sin and death, and makes us family with God, the Jesus who is also our master teacher. He's our rabbi, and we follow his ways. So I want our ethics to be shaped by Jesus. I want my ethics to be shaped by Jesus. I want the way we use our time, like our schedules, our weeks, our discretionary money to be shaped by Jesus. The way we treat people with power and the way we treat people with little or no power, we want that to be shaped by who Jesus was. We want you to be kind, and, and kind in such a way that it's shaped by Jesus. We want you to have conviction and strength like Jesus. I want you to get angry the way Jesus got angry. And I want you to be non-anxious and have peace and harmony in your life the way Jesus had a non-anxious presence in his life. I want every aspect of my life and your life to be shaped to be formed into the image of Jesus Christ. So how, how, do we sh- how are we shaped into the image of Jesus? That is the question of spiritual formation. Now, back in the spring, we were teaching through the second half of Ephesians, and I gave us a definition for spiritual formation. This was the definition that we gave back in the, in the spring, that spiritual formation is the process. Spiritual formation is not an event. It's not something that happened 18 years ago for you on a Sunday. It is an ongoing process of us being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ for the glory of God and the good of others. Now, that's the what of spiritual formation. Today and over the next several weeks, we're going to start talking about the how. Spiritual formation, here's what we said also in our study of Ephesians, that spiritual formation happens 
when we partner our effort with the Holy Spirit on our journey towards Christ's likeness. Here's a phrase. It was a quote from Dallas Willard that we use. That one of the things that we want to be crystal clear is that no one in this room ever earns their place with God. The, the work of the gospel is a free work of Jesus, the divine work of grace that God bestows upon us. Faith is a gift. Grace is a gift. But the work of us becoming like Jesus, following Jesus, does involve our effort. There is a partnership between your effort, your obedience, your willingness to practice the ways of Jesus, and the Spirit of God intersecting with our faith to obey, obey Jesus to change our lives and make an impact in our world. This is what we mean for spiritual formation. So now, for those of you who are like the practical type, you're just like, give me the three things, give me the list, give me what I got to do. You have hung in there for five weeks. So this is your moment, all right? Uh, thanks for hanging with us. So as we journey towards Jesus, as we continue to emphasize what it means to be people who are formed by Jesus, spiritual formation, there are two words I want us to think deeply about. Pathways and practices. When I say pathways, what do I mean? I mean that there is a vision in the gospel writers. There's a vision in the life of Jesus. There's a vision that the apostles give us in the letters of the New Testament for a new way to live. That there's certain patterns in Jesus' life and in the lives of his disciples who are shaped like him. And we want to give attention to those patterns, those categories, if you will, that his apprentices follow. So when you hear pathways, I want you to think about those things. Now, when you hear practices, I want you to hear and think about the activities, the habits, the routines, the literal practices. Think sports, think music, the, the things that the disciples practiced. These pathways and these practices, partner with the work of the Spirit, transform our lives as disciples. This is the how-to. There are pathways that lead us to becoming more like Jesus. These are things that we move towards. This is a path that we walk down. And as we're doing so, there are literally practices that we participate in along the way that the Spirit of God uses to make us more like Jesus, to make us more patient when we tend to be frustrated easily, to make us more kind when we oftentimes are prone to anger, to make us more just when we can sometimes be apathetic to what's going on around us in the world, to make us more loving, to make us more forgiving, to make us less anxious, and on and on and on. And I believe, and here's what I want to share today, is that there are five primary pathways revealed in the Scripture. Not in a list. There's not a passage I can go to and it says this list. But if you were to look at the whole of Scripture, you would find these five pathways Another way to maybe think about it is there are five catalysts that help your faith grow. And not only do we see them in Scripture, if I were to interview and survey you, as I have done so with hundreds of other people, and I were to ask you to tell me your story, tell me what are the things that have helped you grow in your faith? What are the things that the Lord has used to shape who you are as a follower of Jesus? What are the things that have helped you become more like Jesus? You would describe one of these five as being instrumental in your spiritual formation. 
And so here they are, super small, built on the gospel story, gospel people, gospel culture. The process of spiritual transformation takes place in these five pathways. Transformational teaching, gospel-fueled engagement in ministry and mission, practices of discipleship, gospel-formed community, and through the providential circumstances of God in our life. Now, over the next few weeks, we're going to unpack these little bit by little bit. Uh, Today, we're going to focus just on this one, transformational teaching. So I want us to go back to the passage that we read earlier when Jesus called his first disciples. I want you to pick up on this. I want you to notice this. Jesus, he's walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he sees two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother, Andrew. They're casting their net into the sea for their fishermen. Follow me, he told them, right? This is an invitation for them to apprentice under him as a rabbi, and I'm going to make you fish for men. So immediately they followed him. And then we've read this, James and John, they also are fishermen, and Jesus calls them. And so immediately they left the boat, and they followed Jesus. Now I want you to pay very careful attention to the very next verse of what transpires after this initial invitation to follow Jesus. Look at this. Now, Jesus began to go all over Galilee, and what's that word? Say it to me. Participate with me. He began to do what? He began to teach. He began to teach in their synagogues, and then he was preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness amongst the people. Now, this is the end of Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is teaching, and so what is the very next aspect of Jesus' ministry in life? It takes place in John chapter 5. We talked about it a lot, trivia question, the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to how this passage is described by Matthew, or the Sermon on the Mount, the beginning of it. it was, when he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to participate with them. He began to what? He began to teach them. The Sermon on the Mount is one of the most extraordinary teachings in all of history and all of literature, but the Sermon on the Mount is not a teaching on how you and I can be saved, for the most part. Matter of fact, for the most part, it's not even a sermon on all the things that you and I are to believe doctrinally and theologically. For the most part, the Sermon on the Mount is about what it means to be transformed by Jesus. And to live a life in the kingdom of God that is shaped by the values of the kingdom, by the person of Jesus himself. It is a vision of transformation. It is both about belief in truth and the practice of truth. To underscore this, we see where Jesus begins to teach. Jesus teaches this extraordinary sermon, and then he closes the Sermon on the Mount with a parable. And I've read this parable to us over the last couple weeks, but we're going to really focus in on it this morning. Look how Jesus ends this epic teaching. He says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, this incredible sermon, the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, all of the, the teaching that Jesus had on sexuality and divorce and money and anxiety and loving your neighbor and how are we to think about it. Everyone who hears all of these words of mine and acts on them, notice that little phrase there, and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain fell, metaphor here of this parable. The rivers rose and the winds blew and pounded that house. 
yet it did not collapse because it was built on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. I like the NIV phrase of this. The rain fell. Excuse me. Uh, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into, what's that word? Practice. Is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The the reason I'm using this phrase, transformational teaching, to underscore this category of spiritual excitement, this pathway, is because our teaching and preaching of the Scripture, whether in a large group like this, whether in a small group, you know, a Bible study, or whether one-on-one, should call us to go beyond passive belief to active faith and obedience to God's truth. Furthermore, don't miss this, the way we engage the Scripture, particularly when it's taught, should cause us to do more than merely gain knowledge about the Bible. No, there should be an intersection of the Scripture into the way we think and live. Jesus flipped the world upside down with his teaching, right? His teaching moved people to change their lives, Jesus' teaching ticked people off. Matter of fact, if you are here for six months and I don't frustrate you in some way by what I teach, I'm probably not even doing a good job. Like it was disorienting. It was disruptive to the status quo. Jesus' teaching wasn't just about knowing God. It was about knowing God and obeying God and becoming who Christ or who God was giving birth to be. It was transformative. So was the apostles' writings. Matter of fact, listen to how the scripture describes itself. This is Hebrews chapter 4. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. The writer of Hebrews is using a metaphor to describe the scripture is like a scalpel in the hands of a skilled surgeon. Now, what does a skilled surgeon do with a scalpel? He cuts on us, right? And it can hurt sometimes if we don't have the proper anesthesia. But the, the, the surgeon does so to what? To repair, to correct, to, sh- to help us be healthy. And the scripture does the very same thing. It cuts to our hearts. It invades and disrupts the way we think, the way we order our ethics, who we are, And it changes us. You see, it's one thing to know a lot about weightlifting. And it's another thing to actually go to the gym and lift weights. It's one thing to know a lot about nutrition. It's an entirely different thing to eat and um, operate kind of in a diet that is consistent with healthy nutrition. Let me take it a step further. You can purchase cutting-edge fitness equipment. Some of y'all during the pandemic bought a Peloton that now has a bunch of clothes hanging all over it and that you wish you could sell on Craigslist and get your money back. I'm not judging like I've been there. Uh, You can actually go to school, you can go to class and learn the very best practices of nutrition and exercise science. But if you eat at McDonald's every day, and you snack on Twinkies every day, and you never use the equipment you purchased, all the equipment and all of the education is pointless and useless. 
Now, I love this book. But when we talk about the power of this book, we do not mean the actual paper, or if you've got a digital version, the digital version that just sits on a shelf. Or even one that is read, but one that is transformed and obeyed and applied and adhered to. That's what brings power and transformation to our life. Because it's one thing to actually know a lot about the Bible, be able to articulate the gospel, and it's another thing to actually live it out. Matter of fact, let's read, visit Jesus' words, because Jesus has something really black and white and hard for us to say, but I think we need to hear it. Everyone, including the pastor, who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew, and it pounded the house, and it collapsed with a great crash. Here's what Jesus is saying. If you learn, if you listen to what I said, and you learned what I said about ethics, but you fail to practice ethics in my way, Jesus says you're going to experience great collapse. Jesus says if you... If, if you heard what I said about lust and about sexuality, but you refuse to make any changes in your life, if you don't guard your heart, if you don't guard your mind, collapse is coming. If you know what Jesus said about anger and how it destroys humans from the inside out and it wrecks relationships, but you don't put Jesus' words into practice He says, you're going to get burnt. If you ignore Jesus on debt, relationships, marriage, anxiety, pride, and on and on, but do not live in accordance to what Jesus says, you're not going to experience the transforming power of his word. Now, I say that not to be negative Nelly, but just to be faithful to what Jesus said. Like Jesus said, there is a way that my kingdom operates. If you operate in light of how my kingdom is designed to operate, you're going to flourish. Will you experience hardship? Absolutely. Why? The rain fell. Will there be difficulty in your life, things that you didn't see coming? The rivers are wise, yes. But will your house fall down? No. Because your life will be built on the rock. Here's an old proverb for you. The word of God is like paint. It doesn't do anybody good unless it's applied. Now, conversely, I want us to see the positive side of this. When you do practice God's truth, when you do apply God's word to your life, when you do build your house upon the rock and the hard times come, you're not wrecked. Because you put God's truth into practice. Let me ask you something. What do you think of people with extraordinary faith? I mean, people whom you have observed experience hardship, testing in their life, difficulty, and in the midst of that, they're not shaken. They're steadfast. They trust the Lord. You're moved by it, right? You want it in your life, right? Or, or the most cynical of us are like, I just wish I was that naive. But either way, we wish we had what they had, right? Well, here's what I want us to think about today. I want us to get deeper into our understanding of what Jesus is getting at. At the root, at the very root level of obedience to Jesus' truth is you and I 
trusting God enough to believe that what he says is good for our lives is good for our lives. That actual obedience and application and the practicing of the ways of Jesus is in itself an act of faith. So if you want a life of faith, if you want to live by faith, it's not necessarily some sort of abstract, uh, you know, kind of grayish thing out here that we can't define. To live by faith is to trust that what God has said is good for your life, is good for your life, and to just obey him. Uh, This week, Chelsea Dyer, who leads our Grove gathering on um, every month for our women, we were talking about the irony of people in our country, uh, in our culture, this may not be true in other cultures, but it's at least true here, who are committed to different uh, faiths, say Buddhism or Islam, they, they tend to use this phrase, if they are a faithful adherent, that they are a practicing Buddhist. Or I'm a practicing Muslim. And what they mean by that, when they say I'm a practicing Buddhist or I'm a practicing Muslim, is that they take their faith so seriously that they orient their lifestyle around their teacher. But how many of you have met someone and said, hey, I'm, I'm so-and-so, I'm a practicing Christian? Like that, that phrase is not part of our vernacular. Now you meet all sorts of people who say, yeah, I'm Christian. But rarely do we hear someone say, I'm a practicing Christian. And I'm here to tell you this morning that we need a revival of people who claim to be Christians who would understand themselves as practicing Christians who put what God has said into their life and live it. So I want to close with this reflection this morning. What have you read lately in the scripture? Maybe I should back up. We'll talk about this a little bit next week. Have you read the scripture lately? Have you read the words of Jesus recently? And if you have, what have you read lately in the scripture? What have you heard in a sermon or in a small group lesson or from someone who might have been discipling you that you need to begin practicing? Now, all of us will hear things in a sermon or in a podcast or in teaching, and we'll say, that's good. We might even get our notebooks out, like our journals, and write it down. And that's good. That's helpful. But the secret is to go beyond acknowledging that that's good and that's right, and is to actually begin to live it out and to practice it. So what do you need to begin practicing? Think about that. What is something? Most of us can probably think, yeah, I heard that. And maybe it stung a little bit. Maybe it just our eyes were open or like, okay, I didn't know that. Like that's something I should follow. What is it? You just need to begin practicing and you need to walk out of here today. And uh, you actually don't even need to pray. I'm pro-prayer. We'll talk a lot about prayer next week. But you actually don't even need to pray. Like I actually don't have to pray about that. Jesus said to do this thing. We don't have to pray about those things, right? We just need to walk in them. So what truth do you need to obey? What change do you need to make to align your lifestyle with Jesus? One final metaphor here, and I'll wrap up. I was thinking this week, because outside of my pastoral ministry and family life, the thing that I'm probably most involved in is is coaching. I was talking with some coaches about coaches that really make a difference 
uh, versus coaches that frustrate their teams. Coaches that make a difference are coaches that know how to teach. Coaches that frustrate people are coaches that know how to tell. Now, if, if you've got a kid who's in a sport, if you grew up, you know the difference between a coach who knows how to teach you to do the thing, or how about this? Uh, maybe you're uh, more um, inclined to the arts. Think about a band teacher or an orchestra director who knows how to tell seventh and eighth grade members of their band what to do and what to play versus the band teacher, the band director, the choral director who actually knows how to teach the kids to do it. When you are being told to do something, but you don't know how to do it, but you just get told to do it, that's frustrating, right? Hit the ball, you know? Play a B-flat. I don't even know what a B-flat is, but my daughter does. My wife does. What do you need? You need someone who will come alongside and teach you. And one of the things that's so extraordinary about the life of Jesus is Jesus' initial invitation to his disciples was not Peter, James, deny yourself, take up your cross, and go preach the gospel. He didn't ask Peter and James and Andrew and Matthew to leave the tax office and go plant churches. He gave them no instructions. What did he invite them to do? Help me out. What, did, what, was, Jesus, what was Jesus? Just follow me. And then I'm going to teach you. So here today, I, if you leave today challenged by the Spirit, by the Word, to orient your life around Jesus, that's a great way to leave. If you leave today frustrated like, ugh, why am I such a loser? You've missed the point. The invitation of Jesus is, hey, wherever you're at, if you've got no clue about what it means to be my disciple, that's okay. First grade is in session, and I'm going to teach you. You've been following Jesus for 30 or 40 years. The message of Jesus is, we still got a long ways to go. <laughs> Keep following me. The question today is whether or not you will have the faith to do it. We have the trust in who Jesus is to follow his invitation and say, yeah, I will, I'll follow you. I'll begin to do the things that you do. Here is why we put transformational teaching at first in the category. It's because if we don't adopt the mentality of apprentices who are just willing to say to our master teacher, yes, none of the rest of it matters, right? Like next week, I can come and talk to you about the practices of discipleship, and we can talk about what it means to abide. We can talk about what it means to be in the Word and a prayer and to practice Sabbath and fast, and I can do it better than anyone. I won't, but I, hypothetically, I could do it better than anyone who's ever done it. I could make Tim Keller want to mentor under me, but if we don't have the first mentality of obedience to Jesus, it won't matter. A couple weeks from now, I can talk about what gospel-formed community looks like and how spiritual friendship is key to you becoming like Jesus, that none of us become like Jesus alone, that Jesus begins not with a single person. He bends with a group and he forms them into a group that even in their conflict, it helps them become like Jesus. I could, I could just give you the best vision for community and spiritual friendship, but if you won't take a step towards it, if you won't obey it, if you won't walk in it, it won't do you any good. Because like a can of paint that sits in your garage, your 
spouse can have wanted you to paint such and such a room, but as long as the paint is in the can in the garage, ain't nobody happy. You actually got to go open the paint up, and you got to start putting it on the walls. So for some of us, that means there is truth that has been revealed to you, and you have acknowledged that's probably true. That's good. And you just got to start obeying it today. You just got to walk in it. You got to trust Jesus at his word, that his way for you is actually good for you. And if we'll walk, if we'll put it into practice, when the rain comes, and just about everybody in this room has been around long enough to know that the rain's going to come. And when the rivers rise, and when the winds blow, your house won't collapse because you'll be walking with Jesus. And he'll have you. And you'll know what to do. And he'll hold you. And he'll get you through. Wherever you're at. If you're a fisherman who's got no clue about what it means to follow Jesus, just put your nets down and follow him. Been a synagogue and rabbinical teaching all your life and you know all sorts of things about the Bible, just follow Jesus. Obey him. Practice his ways. Let's be practicing Christians. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to you this morning acknowledging that your word is wonderful, but it's hard. (laughs) These are challenging words. But Lord, we confess that it's true, that it's good. And for your glory and for the good of others, we want to faithfully follow you. We want to follow your ways. We want to practice your ways. We want to orient our entire lives around who you are. Give us the faith and courage to be obedient to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Just a reminder, one on one is going to take place here in probably about 10 minutes or so in the cafe. If you're new and you're trying to find a way to get more connected and involved in our church, I'd love to see you there. God bless you. Have a great Sunday afternoon. We'll see you soon.